Hello and welcome to the long lost episode 92 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. If I sound a little different, I have a slightly different recording setup and I am recovering from a mean and wicked cold. Luckily, just a cold. In these times, you have to make sure and the nose pain is just the price you pay for having gotten a virus that could have been anything, but luckily turned out to be a cold. I am humbled and going to be more careful out there for sure. But it's mid-November and here we go in Western North Carolina with winter. We have had some nights down into the 20s, which I looked up, I flipped the phone to Celsius and it's getting close to negative nine Celsius, and that just made it seem so much colder. (laughs) But I wanted to share that for the listeners who do their temperatures in Celsius. But wow, I got cold just looking at the, the temperatures in Celsius. So I immediately flipped it back to Fahrenheit, which doesn't look nearly as bad. I saw on Facebook that a commercial beekeeper friend of mine was recruiting help to get a bunch of hives out of the mountains back to the the warmer climes. And so I, I had to joke him and say, aha, you're running from these temperatures that are coming. And he wrote back and said, absolutely, I am. I'm getting them out of there before it gets that chilly. Because I'm sure it sets them on a different time schedule if they get used to that cold weather and then go back to the warmer place. Frankly, I've been thinking a lot about that, about how here in the, I guess you would call these the the mid-Atlantic region, I think of it as gardening zone six, we have really up and down temperatures. And I had another moment of being slightly envious of the beekeepers further north who have winters that it seems like goes down cold and stays cold. And that brings its own can of worms. But the up and down temperatures are really challenging. I have tucked in my bees, got them nice, cozy, and warm, and then we have a 70-degree day, and I'm in a t-shirt out in the yard, and the bees are everywhere looking for flowers, of course, that are non-existent, and they burned through a ton of honey in the fall. A local beekeeper friend and I, we had been texting back and forth about, okay, you know, I think I've got them ready. They're good and heavy. This was back in September. And by the end of October, we were texting, oh my gosh, they are so light compared to what they were. Yes, I've been starting that list in my notebook, in my B notebook of keep an eye on this hive and this hive and this hive because their weights are light. It was really amazing. We had a a very dry fall, but quite sunny and warm. And so they were out just burning through their honey and really lightened up. So if you are in the Western North Carolina area, and if you got your bees all settled in early, uh, you might want to go out and do a tilt test and see how they're doing because it is startling how much they used. I'm going to come back to that because I'm trying out a a new winter feeding method that I want to tell you about. But first of all, I want to start with, I had a little moment a couple days ago, where I realized just how much we beekeepers need each other to talk to. Because my very, very considerate and quite well-educated on bees spouse, I came in the house and was like, I thought you were working on such and such vital accounting project. And I said, um, I, I was, but I went to check those new little nukes that I put on top of the larger hives and they were so cute. They were poking their darling fuzzy heads out. Um, they had these new cozy 
houses, and it was just adorable. Spouse just laughs out loud and walks away. (laughs) And so I had to, you know, get on the phone and tell a befriend about how wonderful it was. This is something else I'm trying this year. I had a few. It came down to three. Once I had looked in all the little nukes and checked out the population, we had a couple of super unusually warm weeks, and it gave me a window to really get in the hives and look at everybody. I should say get in the small hives. The big hives were kind of, they were already loaded up and locked for winter, and so I wasn't messing with them. They are going into winter, and may the odds be in their favor. The only thing I will check will be the weight by tilt test. But these little nukes, the ones that, truth be told, I probably should have combined. But this year, as opposed to last year, when I looked at them, I was pleasantly surprised by the population. Now, it is still iffy. It's still iffy, and it all depends on how I set them up and how hard our winter is, whether they are actually viable. Now, in past winters, I have tried, as listeners know, putting the little nukes in the bee shed, which is a free-flying, it's just a storage shed, it's not insulated, and it has little holes in the wall that I can put the hives right up to and the bees can come and go. But it's um, a little more sheltered than just being out in the world. That worked absolutely great. The first year, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got this technique, man, this is fabulous. And then the second year, it was a total bomb because I put nukes in there that were simply too created too late and did not grow enough and were too small to survive even in that somewhat sheltered environment. The catch being in that because the shed is insulated and unheated, because I, I just can't cope with trying to regulate temperature that's warm enough to keep them alive, but not warm enough that they will not go into cluster. Anyway, so this year I thought, I have to simplify, and I'm just not going to deal with a shed this year. So I had these three nukes, just basically one eight-frame box, not even full, and they're mediums. So these are really pretty small. But they had quite a few bees in them, but they were right there on the line. And I did not want to lose some of these queens to a, to combining. And so I thought, you know, it's it's just the same for me in this case, to take a chance and try something. So what I'm trying this year is overwintering these three small nukes on top of a larger hive. Now, the thing you use for this is some type of double screen board, and that allows the warmth to come through from the lower larger hive into the top box, which has a separate entrance, of course, ideally facing in a different direction, that houses the little nuke that's taking advantage of the warmth of the larger hive below. Now, the caution, and there's always a caution, every single variable you change (laughs) creates a whole new set of cautions. The catch with overwintering a small nuke on top of a larger hive is, as you know, that larger hive creates quite a bit of moisture and it's going to rise. And so you don't want all that just flowing right into the little nuke because that's more condensation, no doubt than they can probably handle, not to mention probably more humidity than they can handle. Or at least that is what I've read in the cautionary tales on this method. So what I did is I combined something I was already doing with other hives, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, and that is I had a shim. It's about three inches. It's just the 
extra wood that came off when I cut a deep box down to a medium, and that creates a leftover shim, which is very handy. And so what I did is I put that on top of the inner cover of the larger lower hive. So now it's got a it's got their inner cover and then it's got this shim. And what I did is I filled the shim with wood shavings. And so that makes a little bit of insulation for the ones below. But I'm about to put a pretty good size attic on them, so hopefully that'll be enough. And over that shim with the wood shavings, I set a double screen board and then I set the single box that is the new. And then I put a very insulated cover on top of them. And actually what I will do is I will put side insulation on that little nuke as well once the temperatures get a little bit colder, which is Tuesday. So I better get going on that. But anyway, these were the little nukes in their single box on top of a larger hive. And it was truly adorable because when I moved them, I had to wait for a warm day so that I could open them and get them out of the nuke boxes and and into the single eight, because I didn't have any way. I mean, that would be great if I could have just put the nuke boxes somehow on top, but there was no way to to do that. So so I had waited for that warm day. I'd put them in the eight frame box and arranged them so that there was essentially empty comb. There's, There's no brood to speak of, but I did spot the queen, put the empty comb in the middle because they cluster on empty comb, and then put honey frames right up against their little cluster, what I would guess would be their cluster size, and then put a winter patty on the top bars so that they're just they're just right under it. They can eat the roof if they if it is too cold for them to move over to the sides and get any honey. I love these winter patties. I've talked about them before, but they're getting just more and more handy. And as I've said, they are not a pollen patty though they have a speck of pollen in them, a speck of protein, but they are essentially just gooey sugar patties that look exactly like a pollen patty and are as easy to put on, and I, I, I just really like them. The thing I like about both the winter patties or the soft fondant bags that are used in Europe that we can't really get the same here in the U.S., or the sugar bricks which I've discussed in past episodes, all of these things go right above the cluster, either on the top bars or right over the opening in the inner cover. And when it gets cold and when they get low on food, the bees usually are up at the top and in the middle trying to stay warm. So it works that they can eat their roof. And to me, this has the huge advantage that they do not have to leave their cluster to access their winter emergency feeding. There's a phenomenon that happens often if you have a long stretch of cold that the bees cannot move around the hive and they are in a tight cluster in one spot and they get to where the cluster cannot contact honey. Pretty much if if any significant part of the cluster can touch the honey, if they can warm it enough, they can use it and pass it around and keep everybody alive until a warm day, hopefully, when they can move around and relocate it closer into the cluster if they have enough time to do that. So this can create that effect where you have a hive starve, even though there's honey right beside them. It's usually beside. If it's above them, they can usually stretch out and reach it, with a possible exception if they've started brood and won't even move that far. But the whole phenomenon of starving in the middle of a box that has heavy honey frames on the outside. That is a dismaying experience. And so I've found that 
using a winter emergency feed that is right above their heads. And this is the critical part that they can eat it without leaving the cluster. This is why I prefer the things I mentioned to, for example, the winter camp feeding where you just put dry sugar on the inner cover. They have to, A, have the perfect amount of humidity to get up there and use that dry sugar. And B, they have to have enough heat to get up there and do it. And if it's too cool for them to leave the cluster, they cannot. So you can have 10 pounds of dry sugar right above their heads, but if they can't go out that hole in the inner cover and access it, then it's useless. I lost some hives uh, to this. And actually, mine were even a sugar brick, but they were they were the, some of the little nukes that, that I accidentally killed in the bee shed last year. Part of the issue was they were too small to create enough condensation or from their breath to soften that sugar brick which a large hive does with no trouble. In fact, it's great because the sugar brick is absorbing some of that moisture. It it softens. They can now have a lollipop that they can use. But that does require enough humidity to soften it if you're using a type, you know, a, a dry or a hard sugar. And that is where the fondant, or in this case, the winter patties, they are already soft. And so it doesn't take much at all. In fact, just the heat of, you know, the heat of a double handful of bees would be enough up under the winter patty to soften it just enough to give them some stores. So this is not any kind of promotion. I have just found it to be a very helpful tool. And so on these little nukes, what I did is I put the winter patty on the top bars. And that means if they're just up at the top of the frames and they only have one box, so they're going to be on those frames, somebody in that cluster can access the winter patty. Now, the other thing that I wanted to share with you is something else I'm trying. As you know, I am trying to do a heavier top insulation. A friend had mentioned wood shavings in an, in an extra box over the top. And I thought, oh, that is great because I have a ton of wood shavings. We get them because for the ducks that works great for their housing. So I thought, oh, I have it. I don't have to go, you know, 20 miles to a store (laughs) from where I am to get more blueboard insulation because I'm going into winter with too many hives. Does this sound familiar? I don't know. I may need to get in a program. But I didn't have enough blue board to insulate everybody yet. I have it on my list to go to Lowe's and use some of my gift cards from Christmas last year to buy blue board insulation. I'm sure that's not what the giver intended, but that is what I need. So that's what I'm going to use them for. But anyway, I I felt real proud of myself. I took extra boxes, put them on top of the hive over the inner cover and filled them with loose, fluffy wood shavings, and then put the outer cover on top of that. And I just felt so smug because everybody had on these warm caps and I could just think of them all warm and cozy out there. And then I thought, you know, I wonder what the R value of one medium box full of wood shavings is. And unfortunately, you know, you can find out almost anything on the internet. And if you know how to sort things, you can find things that are actually factual. (laughs) At a home building supply R value calculator, I was able to find out that unfortunately wood shavings are not great insulation. I mean, they're better than nothing. They definitely look cozy, but truth be told that six inches and it's just a a medium box full of wood shavings, the R value is only about 8.4 of that whole box. Whereas just by comparison, that's the R value probably of about a two inch of the blue foam board. So I was like, dang, I don't feel as good about that anymore. My workaround is I think I'm going to, once I get the blue board and I cut it to to fit inside that inner box, that top box, I should say, 
what I'll do is I'll take out about half the wood shavings because there's no need to take out the ones below. And I'm about to tell you another reason why. So take about half the wood shavings out, put half blue foam board, and that will be a very, very nice insulated cap. And I will feel good about that. But the reason that I'm not going to take all the shavings out is what is at the bottom of that box. So this is the empty box I put on top over the inner cover of the fair size, fair to regular size hives. And that inner cover has a hole in it. Now, the winter patties are are quite mushy. If I had just laid that over the hole, then the bees would have eaten through it and been in those wood shavings. And you know bees, they would have been trying to clean those out. So I didn't want to do that. And I didn't really, I wanted to put more than one thin winter patty, which is about all that will fit but on the top bars without a shim. And I don't, I don't have that many shims. So what I did, and we'll see how this works, is I took some sandwich containers, some plastic sandwich containers that I had had a big stack of because they don't do that recycling of that number in my community. So I had a big stack of them determined to reuse them. A brand of lunch meat that we buy sometimes comes in these. And so I had developed a little collection. They're actually perfect for taking a sandwich for lunch, but you don't need that many because they last a long time. So anyway, I had a stack of them. I took winter patties and I folded them and basic, and it was warm that day, so they were quite soft, and basically packed that sandwich box full of winter patty. I just smashed it in there so it was solid. It was quite heavy. It's probably a couple of pounds. Then, you know, without putting the lid, the lids are still in a stack to figure out something good to do with them. I took the sandwich container and flipped it upside down so that the bees can come up through that inner through that center hole in the inner cover and access their winter patty. Now, I'm pretty excited about this because it is neater. For example, if I needed to change out the winter patty, the great thing is these containers are clear. So without opening the bees to weather, so it could be 19 degrees or nine below Celsius. (laughs) It could be 19 degrees Fahrenheit out there. And I could go take the outer cover off remove my foam board, just push back the wood shavings and check on that sandwich container full of winter patty. You know, are are they eating it? Is it almost empty? Can I see bees? You know, if I can see bees, then they have, they're making progress on that patty. And I might need to think about putting a new one on there sometime in late winter, I hope. I mean, obviously this isn't their only food or they would go through it uh, quickly. But as you know, I strive to leave enough honey on there for them. But this just gives me reassurance in two things. One, that they haven't run out of honey and I don't know it. Because as you know, tilting, you can't always tell exactly how much is in there and where it is. And and if it's not a warm day, you can't go in there and look. I'm pretty excited about this because it keeps the winter patty neater because when it does get warm, the thing gets gooey and runny and will get all over your hands. Now the bees love that, but it makes it difficult to work. And then also, when the bees are are loose in there (laughs) completely, it makes it hard to change out the patty because to put a new one in there, you're going to have to try to get them off the top bars to lay it down. This is true of fondant or sugar brick or anything that you're putting right on the top bars. So you have to try to move them. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it is amazing. Even on these super warm days when the bees were flying in the fall, they don't act the same in reaction to smoke. And and that's fascinating to me, and I, and I wonder what makes that happen. But in the summer, you apply just a little bit of smoke, 
and they all run down between the frames and then you can put anything on the top bars or scrape them or do anything you need. No problem. But in winter, you puff a gentle cloud of smoke over them and they just stay there. They, it's like, I don't know, it's like their brains go to sleep and they're, they don't go anywhere. It makes it um, hard to do any type of adding food if the bees are involved. So I am hoping that with these little sandwich boxes, now it won't be completely easy, but on a warmish day, I could definitely take the near empty sandwich box off, shake those bees out on the front door so they could go back in and then put a new one on pretty quickly and without smashing many bees. At least that's my hope. The sandwich box full of winter patty. I'm excited about this. I'll let you know how it goes. The sandwich box idea would also work great with the sugar bricks because you could just pack the sugar brick in there, let it dry somewhat, and then flip that upside down over the hole or on the top bars as you wish if you have a shim. And anyway, I'm liking that. And it's a good use to put these plastics that I can't recycle. Something to use those for and not throw them away because I'm really trying not. I'm, I'm trying. It is so hard to minimize plastic in one's life, but I am giving it my best shot. So let me look over my notes. I think that was mostly it. I wanted to tell you about the experiment about trying out the overwintering nukes over the Deborah screen board. Got that idea from of many people, Bob Benny on YouTube. I wanted to tell you about the wood shavings in the box and it's, it's good, but it's not terribly uh, insulative. So I'm going to beef it up with some foam board, and then the winter patties in the sandwich containers. So that is what I have been working on. The other little thing that's trying out an additional bee yard on the farm, It's a, and by that I just mean it's a different electric fence, and it's in an area that is sheltered from the wind. We have a ferocious northwest wind in the winter. It is sheltered by uh, the shed that I was experimenting with. It doesn't get quite as much sun as I would wish it would get, but I'm trying out a little yard there. And the thing I love about it is I can see it out my office window. And so on warm days to see those bees flying against the dark trees, thank you, Susan Spruill, for that idea. That's that's my hope. At least I'll get to see them over the winter because, gosh, I miss the girls over the winter. That said, a friend out in California <laughs> wrote when I was talk I was talking about getting the bees settled down for winter and she's in Southern California and she wrote and said, Oh my gosh, I can't imagine what it would be like to get a break from the bees because they pretty much don't get a break out there. And I guess that has some good parts, but truth be told, I'm kind of looking forward to resting on that for the year and getting to read some bee books and just do some some winter things. And speaking of bee books, the next podcast, I'm going to talk about a book I have and a book that I'll be giving away to a patron who expresses interest. And the book is called The Rose Method. It's an Irish book on a method of beekeeping that when I read it, I was like, wow, with just a few changes, that is very much close to the method that I'd say I use in my yard. So that was kind of fun. Of course, everybody can you know, do a method and then call it a name and act like it's something new. But truly, there's almost nothing new in, in beekeeping. And well, this is a little soapbox. But anytime you see something, you know, super duper brand new, try this, buy this, you know, there's always a buy this in there on these new super duper things. But there are so many old or just downright ancient ways to keep bees that still work beautifully. So Anyway, as y'all know, I'm not a fan of a lot of the the new hype bee product. 
but I'm, I'm willing to look at everything and try. And if I see something that seems to me like a great improvement, I will definitely tell you. But the rose method reminds me somewhat of waray beekeeping, a couple of other types mixed in. So I will be talking, I'll give you a book review for those of you who might want to get the book. And then for my dear, dear patient and supportive patrons, I'll be giving away a copy. And in closing, speaking of things with different names, I was having a conversation with a beekeeper that I'm trying to get to come on to do an interview. And I'd be pretty excited about that because this is a very inventive, creative beekeeper. A beekeeper doing some of the most, to me, the most exciting experiments in his bee yard. I'm trying to get him to come on the podcast. But anyway, in a email conversation with him, he mentioned a type of split he had been using. And he and his coworkers had given it a name, which I'll tell you later. But it was funny because I was like, yeah, I have heard of that split. And I was taught that technique under the name of a flyback split. It was just one of those moments when I'm like, wow, it's everybody's doing these things. But it's not like there's one central naming organization for beekeeping techniques. So you might run across the same technique under five or six different names. And that was just one of those one of those moments where you go, okay, nothing new under the sun. But also very inventive because it's not something you would ever be taught in a standard beekeeping book. And and it's fun. It's really fun to get to the stage to where you know of things, you know enough about your beekeeping that when you run across a potential solution to a problem you have, because if you're beekeeping, you're going to have some type of problem. <laughs> That's just the rule. But if you run across a solution, it's great to have enough experience that you will get over time to go, oh, that might solve my problem. And then, oh, that's ridiculous and that's silly and that's solving a problem that doesn't exist on those other gadgets. Hang in there, listeners. If you have had a great bee year, I wish you a great winter. If you have had a terrible bee year, I just want to encourage you, don't give up. I had some patrons to to stop being patrons. And sometimes I like to ask, you know, is it is it just that I was too slow in getting material up or was the material not helpful to you? Or, you know, let me know why you've elected not to be a patron anymore. And I hate to say it, but the number one reason people have dropped out of, of patroning is that their bees died and they, they're getting out of it. And I feel so sad about that because it takes so many years, in my opinion, to get the skills to where you can reliably get some bees, not all of them, but some through the winter. But it takes a lot of years and it takes a lot of losses often. The first few years, especially I had this, my first few years went great. So I thought, man, I got this down. And of course, then life comes to give you some wisdom that life doesn't work that way, especially bees. If you have had the unfortunate situation to have a bad bee year, to have lost your bees, or if you don't know you've lost your bees yet, but you're going to lose your bees this winter, whatever happens, don't give up. That's my message. Keep learning and you will get the skills to do this. All right. Thank you all for your patience in waiting for this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> Family matters, travel, work, and then a week of a cold where I, I couldn't possibly talk this long. Just, you know, life. So you have been patient and supportive. Patrons, I owe it all to you. All right. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon.